Goo Goo Gaga in honor of the Boss Baby family business. What's an actually cute kid in a movie? Uh, I'm Katie Rich, and as we all know, I am firmly against kids in mm. movies. I think they should be in school and not on your screen. Hottest, so your hottest take. I have a strong preference for babies who don't know that they're in movies, so I'm going to go with Shiloh, Jolie, Pitt, and the Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Cute baby, didn't know she was on a movie. I'm Matt Patches, and I am here to defend Jonathan Lipnicki and his brain facts in Jerry Maguire. He's a cute kid. He has he's facts. A cute, he's a cute kid. I hear my mom coming. I have to go to bed. Uh, I am David Ehrlich, and remember the baby from Capernaum, of all films, from a couple no, years ago? do not. Capernaum? Do not. Yeah, the Nadine Labaki movie that was kind of, of a big deal at Cannes, and I think it may have been shortlisted for Best International Film, but... Yeah, I think it was. It's a real bummer, right? About, like... Uh, it's about a kid who sues his camp. own... It's like a young kid who sues his own parents. Oh, no, I'm thinking um, of but the little, the little, there's a little kid in the second part of the movie who is just so, so heartbreakingly cute. Uh, that was the first thing that came to mind. But also more recently, like Alan S. Kim from, from Minari. Yeah. Tough to beat. Tough to beat. No, he was cute until he gave his grandma piss. Nah. Listen, sometimes you got to give your grandma piss. <laughs> Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 355. It's Pandemic 67. It is the week of Wednesday, June 30th. That is the day that, according to History.com, maybe not according to the actual historical fact, we don't know, but allegedly that's the day that in 1989, <laughs> Do the Right Thing, opened in theaters. Yeah, it's had, it has had anniversary editions that have come back out on the June 30th. This is what's confusing, but then... Wikipedia list in the July it opened? I don't know. Around this time in 1989, Do the Right Thing came out. Still a great movie. Uh, yeah, well, it played at Cannes, and so this is like the middle, you know, sometime after Cannes that year. Uh, speaking of Cannes, David, you're going to France next week. We oui, oui. exciting. We oui, oui. We're not talking uh, about Cannes today. But I will not be here next week, and I think someone else is also not going to be here next week. Uh, I won't be here so, next week. Yeah, see could, what happens. Oh, God, Dave it's just going to be Dave and Patches They're just going to cancel the show, the show again. Hey, yeah, oh, whoa. Un- unfortunately, that was years ago, <laughs> and yet those wounds go deep. But uh, if I am still alive, I will send a dispatch uh, the following French week dispatch. from Canada. French dispatch. Yes, you did. It was good last week, and it's good now. Still fun. Uh, David, I suppose that uh, I should ask you if we have any reviews. Yeah, but Katie, I think that you already know the answer, which is that we don't. And so now it oh. is time to regale slash punish our listenership with some. Katie's Choice, incredibly boring, esoteric facts about Britain's royal family. Yeah, and I, I don't know if I'm going to really live up to the Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes, only because I care about this and don't care about high Star bar. Wars Galaxy of Heroes. But uh, this is the week, this week, Princess Diana would have turned 60. But I'm, I'm going to talk about Princess Diana, but not any of the fun stuff. I'm talking about how Princess Diana's parents met. So, her mother, <laughs> Francis was the daughter of the Fermoy family, and her father was the Viscount Althorpe of the Spencer family. The Spencer oh, family. Oh, I knew Viscount Althorpe. Yeah, yeah, everyone knows him. Uh, is she and... from Narnia? Where is it? <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's the guy, the Viscount Althorpe. Uh, 
Uh, her mother is Lady Francis of the Fermoy family, and her mother was a relentless social climber who put her into the uh, British social scene and took her to the debutante balls. And she met the Viscount Elthorpe, who was at the time engaged to Lady Anne Coke, who is now Lady Glen Connor. This is according to Tina Brown's book about Diana. She was the 19-year-old slim, blonde, and witty daughter of the Earl of Le- Leicester. Leicester? I don't know. Uh, a Norfolk neighbor at the Palatial Holcomb Hall and friend of the Fermoys, whose violin recitals were accompanied from? on the piano. Uh, uh, Prin- Tina Brown's quoting? book, The Diana Chronicles, oh, sorry. Yes. which is an extremely useful book uh, about Princess Diana and has a lot of interesting things about Diana. And Your copy of it looks like one of those old 80s laminated copies. Oh, yeah. It's, well, it's, from, it's, from, it's, from, it's literally from the library. You can see the, uh, you know, like the library oh, barcode amazing. on the back. Uh, but yeah, uh, Francis, Francis had all the money. Viscount Althorpe didn't, even though his was the ancient family name. Uh, and Katie, I don't want to, I don't want to interrupt this fascinating oh, do, you, spiel, you but don't? you do, I really actually don't. I was, I was on every, hooked on every word, but you do look from the part of you that we can see, like you're ready for Midsommar. So it, <laughs> yes, it, I am wearing my Midsommar shirt, which is uh, somehow appropriate for yes, all this. Instead like, of lighting us on fire, she's reciting we have facts from Viscount vibes and also Midsommar vibes. Please go yeah. on. Uh, yeah, Ruth Bermoy was just this woman who was like dead set on getting her daughter set up uh, with someone rich. And her oldest daughter, uh, Mary, was apparently not pretty enough, so she went immediately down to her next uh, daughter. Um, and they were all scared of their grandfathers and on both sides of the family. And then the Spencers, once they were married, they had three daughters, and it was a big catastrophe. They gave birth to a child who was born hideously deformed, and the mother never yeah. got to see him. Which Sorry, I'm getting too interesting now. I know. I was about uh, to say this is this is good content. I'm this going. Is... I'm going to read you a, a sentence about uh, Princess Diana's grandfather on her father's side, the Earl Spencer, who uh, didn't have a lot of money but had a giant house. Jack Spencer's solution was miserly, fastidious thrift. He hand rinsed the china, dusted the books in the library, and relaxed at night by working on needlepoint seat covers for the chairs. So, when Oof. you're reading your Princess Diana tributes, just know that these are the boring and terrible people that she came from. You Please don't have to hear more us, about them uh, if you leave yeah, us a Leave review. us reviews so we don't this have to learn well more about Viscounts and shit. Heat. This is just sweating <laughs> it up in this, on this podcast. That's why they all went crazy. And the next, the, next, the next time we do this, it's not going to be about, you know, someone as, as sexy and electrifying as Princess Diana. It's going to oh, be yeah. about, like, fucking... Uncle Much Norm. Or, no, I was going to go to uh, the Queen's racist cousin, Prince Michael. Who? No, that racism is also kind of Ooh, interesting. Okay. In this, in this case. <laughs> right. uh, can we do worse? Your quote, not mine. Can I'll, we do I'll, worse? Learn, I'll learn everything I can about the Queen's youngest son, Edward, who no one knows anything about because he doesn't do anything. That Perfect. sounds interesting. You got to go more. Do- all right, you gotta all go right. drier. Gonna, it has gonna... to be like dry cleaning facts. That's how dry <laughs> you gotta go. I want to uh, know about um, You know what I should have done? They released like the royal like expenditures report last week. I'll read that verbatim next week of just how Wait, many pounds they do Prince that? Charles. Yeah. Well, it's like For the tax because of the people money, in the country you know? need to know. Wow. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Excellent. Well, this keeps getting more interesting. Please leave us a review on iTunes, uh, Fighting in the War Room, so that you can spare us from that indignity. <laughs> Uh, well, this week, we're getting into a lot of movies coming out in theaters. Uh, there's The Fast 9 out there in the world, but we're finally getting back to, like, smaller movies actually getting theatrical releases, which it feels like we haven't. Like, that's been much slower to come back than even the blockbusters. 
So we're finally getting Zola, the A24 film that premiered at Sundance back in January of 2020. Where Patches and David saw it, and they have not seen it since, so it is, it is but a distant memory for them. But I saw Zola recently um, and was into it to a, to a degree that I didn't expect even from all the buzz that it's been getting. Because it's, it's based on this Twitter thread by this woman whose uh, handle was Zola Moon, I think. Um, and it's all about this crazy night, this crazy trip she had to Miami. And she was a stripper, and she you know teamed up with this other stripper, and they traveled to my, to maybe not even Miami, somewhere in Florida. And it turns out the other stripper also had a pimp and she was trying to get the her friend to sleep with her. And it was, you know, kind of captures the essence of being on a terrible road trip with somebody with a bunch of crazy behavior surrounding it. And as someone who like wasn't that into spring breakers and like doesn't have like a huge taste for like crazy tawdry stories, I didn't think I'd like it. But it's the movie is uh, directed by Janiska Bravo, written by Jeremy O'Harris, who wrote Slave Play and is this huge rising star in theater. Um, it just pays attention to like all the human dynamics among these people. It's really funny, even in addition to like all the crazy stuff it's throwing at the wall. It's really creative with the way that it references back to the Twitter thread, which I hadn't read, but you know, you can you hear a little Twitter noise whenever like something happens that you remember from the tweets. Um, the performances are all really solid and like kind of silly, but also like Coleman Domingo is playing the the pimp. I think he doesn't have a name. It's like Yeah, his character's he's X. literally like Mr. X. Um, yeah, Coleman Domingo literally never not great. Yeah, th- great true. Guy. I mean, but he also like he is a proper character, even though he's really menacing. He's like funny, and you can kind of like see how the how his brain is working through all of this. Um, and then Riley Keough is playing the kind of um, the stripper turned prostitute who kind of gets the our main character into this whole mess, and she's this white girl with this like very like. I don't know what you... Not as patois, like this very, like, white girl trying she's to from, sound black. Janixa, Janixa would say she has a black scent. That's what she said at Sunday. Wait, say that like, again. You, you cut off. I said Janixa would say at Sunday she said that she... That Riley Keogh has a black scent, that she's fully appropriating uh, yeah, black you know, I mean, culture. Yeah, it is very, very appropriating black culture. Um, I, I would say, like, that is the biggest element that differentiates her character from the one she played in American Honey, which feels like hmm. it's in the same universe. Yeah, um, in some respects. And yeah, and I never saw American Honey partly because I I hear you like, never saw the seminal masterpiece American Honey. I know the movie that I I mean that movie that movie came loaded with takes, but I I uh, quite enjoyed it. I feel like Zola has also come loaded with takes, but like maybe mostly on the positive side. Oh, the other thing I was gonna say is like Nicholas Braun shows up with this like kind of hapless boyfriend, and we really was expecting like cousin Greg from Succession in Florida, which it is to some extent, but he's also like sad and you're like care about him like it's not like he wants to be in a relationship yeah like this this movie is certainly like a an adventure like not a romp exactly because it's got these elements of like kind of sadness and darkness surrounding it but it it takes care to pay attention to the people who are in the middle of all this whirlwind and taylor page as zola in the middle of it she just has this like a lot of the scenes revolve around her just kind of like looking around the room at the situation she found herself in and her face carries so much of the like indignation but also like intrigue and like her like testing out her last threads of patience as she just like tries to be able to go home and get out of this entire mess uh i enjoyed it a lot it's a good movie i would really recommend uh i mean this is a movie that i have not seen since january of 2020 um when i enjoyed it quite a bit and was thrown by the in, in, in a way that i really appreciated at the time and have only come to appreciate more since by the melancholy of it that katie alluded to and i think that Janixa Bravo gets into in detail in the recent profile she did with Jenna Wortham in the New York Times, which really sort of does, does a really fine job of not only you know, pro- profiling who Janixa Bravo is as an artist, but what she wanted 
get it to get out of the story and questions of worth and this black woman's worth and the way that she is sort of at the, the mercy of these people over the, the course of this weekend and how she wrestles some of her agency back and speaks to the unexpected sort of grace notes that the movie ends on, um, which for me, anyway, from what I remember, were, were very unexpected. It was a, sort of a minor key um, for a yeah. movie that at least initially seems like it's going in a different direction. Um, I mean, the it movie definitely, is very funny out the get-go. I mean, the way it is. playing with social media tropes, there's a big like song and dance scene in their car driving down to Florida. It's a lot of fun. It is a bit of a romp in the beginning, and it kind of opens up into this Cohen-y, like dark comedy i mean it's it's but it's also not like it's like look at how sad it is that these people have to live like this like it's not it doesn't veer version of darkness in that way it's just kind of very like oh i'd like like david was saying just like attuned to celebrate Paula's ability to do what she wants and like she's a good stripper she like knows her rules and it's not that stripping and sex work is bad it's that the circumstance that she's been roped into without her consent is bad and and it does a surgical job of separating her POV from that of the people that she's been roped along with over the course of this weekend and making mm-hmm. sure that we sort of see the situation in some of those rooms, especially when customers are coming in. This one long sequence in the middle of the movie that I still remember vividly um, that we understand sort of where she is in all of this vis-a-vis Riley Keough's character, um, mm-hmm. which is not an easy thing to do and it really allows the movie to take deeper roots and be more character driven and less sort of sensationalized um, like you might expect from the source material. But it also honors the truth of the sort of heightened source material to begin with. It's a really impressive balancing act. There's a lot of genitalia. Well, in that one scene, sure. But all all male genitalia, there is no female genitalia in the movie. Um, Janixa probably made a point of that. And, uh, yeah, there is, it's a parade of penises. I laugh. And I remember, I mean, they come at you fast and furious. I remember oh, like one of them being vaguely menacing towards the end, but it's been menacing. Yeah. Okay, there's the, one that's just like comically huge. Uh, but it's like, it's like, not this, it's like kind of modeled in a way with two T's, <laughs> not M O D. Uh, I just remember being like, it, it seemed like it had been in like a world war one accident. But wow. it, we're talking about something that I saw for a few frames, uh, you <laughs> know, never 18 forget. months ago. So I, I could be uh, misremembering, but that scene stands out for sure. Uh, yeah. My, just, my question uh, for you, uh, having seen it more recently, Katie, is the, I don't think there's anything quite like how the movie emulates social media um, from the 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 obvious like there's tweet sounds in it there's scrolling there's just like these visual effects that make it more social media like but the the tone of it all the chaos of it all feels mm. like being online a lot of the times do you think that that is successful does it is it overboard i'm wondering like how, know, do, how do you I... dip a toe into being online and make that expressive and visual i feel like it feels way more like experiences i've had in real life where like suddenly you follow someone to someone else's house and you're like oh shit i don't want to be here like that isn't really something that exists online like there's a part midway through the movie where riley keogh's character kind of starts telling her own version of the story and that felt very oh, yeah. internet-y and like the way that like people can like dispute the same basic facts um i get that like the way that the internet works is part of how the story plays out and like, you know, them taking selfies in the dressing room, like, becomes a plot point. But I, I was definitely less interested in how it re-evoked the feeling of being online than how it evoked, like, the the place where it's happening and, like, the, the dynamics between the people who are actually on screen. 
But I think you other people have found that it is. It feels. You like didn't being. hear the Twitter noise, and just I like did hear the Twitter. Sh- a chill goes down your spine. But also, when was like the last time you heard the Twitter noise? But it's also it's been a while. But it's also I think interesting just to sort of contrast the um, the sort of heightened language that she used in the Twitter thread, which is a thread that she like you know was not filed off impromptu. It was something she really sort of workshopped and and made as spectacular as she could. Um, and the sort of more mundane reality of what's happening in the moment. And these are still, these are still volatile things that are happening. That's not, you know, uh, worker day stuff. Um, but still to see how it sort of transforms from that reality into the, the thread as we remember it, uh, is interesting. Uh, you think yeah. that, um, Janixa, did anyone see Janixa's first film, her debut film, Lemon? Lemon, no. No I, one I has seen to. this movie. It is. Really intense. It's a comedy. Michael Sarah's in it. Brett Gelman, her ex-husband, is in it. Um, and it is about race, and it is about being an ignorant slob, and it is really, really funny and weird and intense, like, very staged and heightened. Um, and you can see how she gets to this movie. This is much more accessible. And um, I do wonder if people think if, like, Janixa is, is this major? Is this, like, a major debut i feel like sundance the year before wait, was was the farewell and that sort of thing was the year before yes this, right what uh, I'm losing all track yeah. of time yeah, yeah, yeah i feel like last sundance didn't get its due because of obviously everything that has happened yeah but, I but uh if um, normal life would take place if Janice minari would, would premiered there zola premiered oh, there God, right. promising promising young woman premiered there it got a it was a good sundance um yeah i, I just feel like this is for me, it's the arrival of a of a of a major filmmaker. I feel like it's really skilled, and I'm glad that her sensibilities are still deranged and still uncomfortable, um, but finding ways to to go down easier. Um, and because Lemon is such a, a nuclear warhead of a movie, but I don't know, it feels pretty major to me. I'm I'm hoping she does a lot more. I don't know what kind of mode a person like this can slip into. If there's anyone analogous to this who's come out and kind of like bold ways that's found a mainstream career. I, I don't know what to compare her to, you know, like 20 years ago or 10 years ago, but it feels pretty major to me. Uh, I don't know a ton about Greg Araki's career, but in, in terms of like someone who like came out of Sundance with like a big, bold film, like that seems similar, but I don't know. I, I mean, I, I think Hollywood's a lot different now than then. I, I don't know what Janiska Bravo has lined up next, but I assume it's something big because Zola has been a big deal. Well, she's already directed some of In Treatment season four, which you know I've also been watching, and is quite spectacular. There you um, go. And is not as intense as Zola or visually splendid, um, but it is cutting. And um, I don't know. I think reading all the interviews, as you said, David, with Janixia, doing done a billion interviews now since this movie premiered. Um, but everyone is interesting. Like she really has a very specific vision for this and a very specific idea she wants to communicate, but. Zola, watching it, I don't think I'm, like, inundated with discourse. Katie, you have the freshest memories of this. But, um, I mean, there's a lot to talk about and chew on, but I, it's a pleasure to watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It's not like a, an idea movie or, like, a weird discourse movie. Yeah, it's like it, there's a, a scene that um, Richard Lawson, my colleague, wrote about in his review where, like, they're driving in the car and the camera passes by, like, someone at a traffic stop. Like, uh, I can't. It's like a it's a black man being pulled over by cops and I don't know if they're beating him. It's like something very like disturbing is happening. And the camera like kinda lingers on that as the car passes by. So it's kind of like 
it's putting this kind of wild adventure in which nobody really gets hurt into the context of like a lot of darker things surrounding it. So it's aware of the world. But yes, it's like it is within these steps of a of a woman who lived to tell the tale, who had this Twitter thread that went viral, who's this amazing writer and told the story in this way. And it, it stays within the personality of that for sure. Zola, it's actually out only in theaters. Movies are only in theaters now. Uh, except for, um, you know, when you want to pay 30 bucks to see Black Widow next week. That's true. our mini segment tonight we are going to devote exactly how much time a movie like f9 deserves to have time devoted to it five minutes tops david you and i have seen f9 um people seem very excited about this movie i think you wrote a pretty glowing review this movie is a glowing glowing c plus it's so muddy and like i don't know what the problem is i mean something i wrote in my review on polygon was like I can't believe at this stage, nine, I guess ten installments in, if you count Hobbs and Shaw, that this franchise is still trying to, like, figure itself out. It's not, it, it, there's not a blueprint for a fast movie, but you think there would be. Just, like, put a cars. bunch of there's so car- many I know, well, just put the cars in there and well, do the car stuff. The fast, the fast Furious franchise has a unique problem, which is that it came to a very uh, tragically natural endpoint with Furious 7, which was already sort of pushing the limits of what they could do and already sort of, you know, well beyond the parameters of what made sense to these characters. When Paul Walker died and they felt like they need to continue and, you know, F8 is such a precipitous drop in quality, it, but oh, it also terrible. feels... Terrible. I mean, the, the cardinal sin of F8, for me, it was it just continued F9. It's the introduction of Charlize Theron's, like, truly awful villain. Um, well, you don't well like Cypher? Even... I thought you were a big Cypher fan. Oh, boy. Uh, That's where a Cypher with literally... an eye. She spends literally all of F8, like, standing in a plane being like, move, like, do this, like, hit the jack, <laughs> like, just saying things into a computer. It's a very and, strange deal that she struck with Universal Pictures. That she, yeah. in the F8, she's in a plane, and in F9, she's just in a box. She, she really doesn't to have to do anything. She, she um, is in F9. I, she is yes, in F9. She, she, in her boys, she and her page boy haircut her back. And she, I think, for me, sort of epitomizes everything that this franchise has done wrong. I mean, that you feel... And what, you know, my, my review of this movie was not a, a rave, as Patch just said. It was a gentleman C+. Plus, but most of the credit was really for Justin Lin trying to get things back on track, trying to get it going back in the, in the right direction, reintroducing Han, making up for the sin of killing him off um, unnecessarily, and uh, or even worse than that, sorry, making Jason Statham one of the good guys and disrespecting Han's memory. So now, you know, and the, the and world is metastasizing and growing, and the movie does the laziest fucking job oh. in the world of retconning Han back into it. I really was shocked. But I, of course, they've also written themselves in such a corner that what else? This movie is not justice know. for Han. Let's be really um, clear wow. here. This is like, they brought Han back to put him in a trailer and then throw him away. I think at this point, Han demands his own movie. I think that's really the only way to do it. Like a, a pared down, maybe Tokyo set, sort of Tokyo Drift Redux that is this around the same scale, cool. starring Han. It would fucking rule. Just do Tokyo Drift all over again, whatever. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, you can go to Korea, go anywhere. Anywhere that isn't near Vin Diesel. <laughs> but uh, the, yeah, I mean, there's, 
the, the, that's the problem, you know, though. I mean, you you hit it right on the head. Like Vin Diesel is the problem of this franchise, right? That Vin Diesel has nothing to offer. He is dramatically inert, and yet in this installment, we're getting deeper and deeper into Dom, as if Dom matters. Like Dom has never well, mattered. because it's harkening back to a day in this franchise when Dom did matter, um, and it's trying to sort of have the best of both worlds by going bigger and more spectacular and you know out of this world. Uh, while at the Back same time, when I was time, fourteen, Dom yeah. mattered. That's yeah. how long. No, this and, has but been at the going. same time, like going, you know, it's the most spectacular of the movies, but also the most sort of, and I use this quote or this word rather, uh, just for lack of better options, but most introspective of them and uh, character driven, if you will. And it, I, you know, it's an ungainly combination, and it would help if the action were a little bit smoother. A lot of the effects are practical and cool as hell, but because of the way that they're mixed with sort of clumsily with some computer generated elements. Um, I mean, my, my call, my coworker, Chris O'Fault actually had a really great Twitter thread the other day about the way that we talk about the mix of um, practical and computer generated elements. And it's always a really reductive binary, but there are like practical stunts in this movie, like the magnet car through the store totally that were done of money for real, <laughs> but because of how they are sewn into this really plastic digital milieu they don't feel that way when you're watching it they're mind-blowing when you see the behind the scenes footage but when you're actually watching the movie it barely registers and that's a problem for some of it and then of course you mix things up by doing things that are not possible um yeah i mean it doesn't really it doesn't really track i think cypher needs to be killed immediately and the threat of her returning it just augurs terrible things why is she such a bad villain because she there's just nothing to her. There's She's just things. an empty shell. They she had is to a cipher. Invent Dom's brother just to have cipher in the sequel. Yeah. I mean, they dropped the dead weight of Scott Eastwood, but they have a lot more to go. Um, yeah. And unfortunately, yeah. the market and the, the need for these movies and what they, they stand for is being bigger and bigger and bigger. And I was so happy that they helped bring people back into movie theaters. And God bless the movies. But you know, the the mandate for these movies is to get bigger when all they really need is to constrict. Um, and get back down to human scale. And I don't foresee that happening. I think Justin Lin can probably steer this thing home as well as anybody, but I do think that he is, uh, he, you know, he, he does not seem to have the interest to scale things down back even to something like F. But which size, is interesting which is because when he left fast the Fast size. franchise and then went to Star Trek and did the like scaled down character driven action version of that Abrams verse. He needs to take the same approach as he did in Star Trek Beyond to his own franchise. It's very peculiar. But I don't know if you can with Vin Diesel, the orchestrator of all this, who loves to go big, big, big. I mean, this movie reminds me of how much Vin Diesel loves Dungeons and Dragons and and how much he loves mythology. Sure. And who cares about the mythology? But in this, this movie? is the kind of this is the rare event where I want to put aside my sort of critical obligation. And just honestly, just be like, think of all the jobs this movie made possible, and <laughs> think all, of all the, the cars the in, they crash, the industry that they help save. By I think everyone should go see this deeply mediocre film in theaters four times. Uh, bring your friends and family, and while you're there, see Zola, see whatever the fuck else is opening. There's other movies um, now. Yeah, it has just, opened uh, the gates. You know, it, it doesn't always have to be Fast and Furious. Let's let's not make it so that it's this or nothing. Um, but not this ride could be or better, die. But ride, you know ride, 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 ride. Can I tell after, you guys? Oh, after ahead. 18 months of not being in a movie theater, it, it does the trick. I mean, it definitely leaves you wanting, but still scratches that itch. Sorry, sorry Katie, what were you saying? Uh, I just want to tell you what I've been amped for ever since I went to see In the Heights and saw it in theaters. Uh, I saw for the first time the trailer for Jungle Cruise, and I am 
so in for Jungle Cruise. That is the movie that I just like cannot I wait to see on the biggest, dumbest screen imaginable. Would love to believe. There's so many forces at odds with with Jungle Cruise. The Rock is is a toxic entity. He is me. a toxic. Jean Calixera. He is a He's a positive force, so I don't know. Yeah. What happens when you combine a toxic with a positive force? Let's talk about see. Jesse Plemons on a submarine, and then that's that's mostly that's what, what F nine could have used. And I know they yeah. did a submarine last franchise, but they last, didn't have Jesse Plemons uh, sequel. Yeah. But Jesse Plemons was not in it. So. Let's move on before I melt to death. So we are recording this on Monday, June 28th, but tomorrow, Tuesday, June 29th, will be the 20th anniversary of Steven Spielberg's AI. Can you believe we are all that old? Um, and uh, this is a movie that has always been really interesting to me just because, first of all, when you talk about the kind of movies that would not be made in this day and age, I mean, really only a Spielberg could, with his sort of muscle, could, could do something this bizarre in the blockbuster space, um, this challenging and perverse uh, a movie that really takes you to some dark places. It seems even less fathomable now than it did in 2001. Uh, but it's always been so interesting to me because it dovetails in really obvious ways with so many of his recurring motifs and ideas fixe. And there's the Stanley Kubrick element as well. Stanley Kubrick had developed the project, uh, died by the time they began to make it. But um, his fingerprints are on it here and there, even though uh, history's shown that people were way off the map when trying to guess who was responsible where, for what parts of it. I was about to say, where, um, where do you see Kubrick's fingerprints or what has been reported as his Yeah, how do we know which parts are his? Well, we'll get there. I mean, because it's all been, okay. it's all on the record and Spielberg has talked about it extensively, as has the screenwriter. Um, but uh, we will get there. But Isn't Stan uh, Spielberg the screenwriter of this film? He, uh, no, he sorry. The, not the, he is the screenwriter. I meant the writer of the story Short that this story. is adapted from. Ah. Um, and I think who also worked with Kubrick on it when he was alive. But uh, And it is – so like it has that, that Spielbergian essence to it, but at the same time is menacing and, and dark and exploring a lot of things that, that made it really ahead of its time, um, especially in the way that it – anticipated the question of whether what we were just talking about in regards to F9, the reality of, of unreal things, um, which is ironically embodied by the human actor Hilly Joel Osment in his remarkable, you know, best Pinocchio that's ever been on screen, unblinking performance as this android David, who is modeled after William Hurt's dead son of the same name, um, and then given to a family uh, who works at William Hurt's company, um, who have a sick son, a comatose son, and are sort of looking for a uh, replacement is too heavy of a word, but you know, in the only in, in the way that only grieving parents could sort of uh could sort of take that leap of faith to have this sort of proxy understudy of a robot son whom the mother, who's played by Francis O'Connor of bedeviled fame, uh imprints upon and uh and you come on, you've seen AI. And if not, you the, and what are not you doing? the father, notably, which is a hilarious. Yeah, the uh, father, the father is really sort of a non-entity. Um, but this is really a movie about the mothers and sons, um, right. and the sort of the love that a, a little boy can have for his mom. Uh, Katie, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, but um, not that your kids are as old as David is. In this how movie. is your He's robot like son? How is your robot son? Yeah, but. Uh, 
They you know, say that ask me when I'm going to die daily. That's not what they all do, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, that is the very first thing that David does as soon as he's awakened by the string of code words that his mom says to him is he realizes that she's going to die one day and, and begins a movie that for me is really about sort of the relationship between love and time. It's a movie that is impossible to talk about without talking about, you know, the biggest mysteries and, and topics that we have. It's a movie that is impossible to write about. I've learned this week without biting off more than you can chew. Um, and I think there is sort of a disjointed quality to it that threw a lot of people at the time when this movie was not sort of universally respected, even if there was always a contingent of highbrow cinephiles, uh, maybe, you know, predecessors of the same crowd that would go on to embrace something like Twin Peaks The Return, who saw the the merits of the movie. But um, it's a tricky movie. I mean, the first third is all this very, for me, very Kubrickian, uh, unnerving sequence of like this robot David, an alien to this phone. It starts like all parenthood does is a horror movie in the way that David is introduced and how he assimilates into this home the scene where he eats spinach, the scene where he accidentally drowns the sort of understandably cruel human son who recovers and comes home. That kid sucks. <laughs> the scene where she he hides him suck. in the closet because she doesn't want to put up with him. That was probably the yeah. most related to the parenting in this movie. Yeah, oh, and like it is all really, you know, even even Henry, the human son, who's nothing but cruel Martin. to David. You, Henry's the husband. Martin, sorry. Sorry. Yeah, you understand sort of where he's coming from, like that feeling of what it must be like for a nine-year-old boy to come home and find that he's been replaced by like a superior you know, undying, uh, perfect robot son whose love for their mom is going to be complete and unwavering. I mean, it's difficult. And then he almost drowns you. Um, And there's actually a fun detail. Yeah, but a fun detail is that uh, in the AR game that was built around the movie when it came out, um, one of the... I. So what's interesting is that in the AR game that came out with the movie, uh, there was a little detail about how when Martin grew up, he was so traumatized uh, by the experience of sending David back to the factory to be destroyed for all he knew that he spent his life working to sort of advance the relationship between humans and mechs. <laughs> so there's, way, there's redemption for him. That AR game has a name. It's called The Beast. The Beast. It's, uh, it's all did... about the death of Evan Chan. I'll never forget this. How... So this, this was something you would access through like a web browser in 2001? Did you just pull that detail out of thin air? Yes, because wow. who... Look, search who killed Evan Chan, and I'm sure our colleague Mike Ryan and I will be the ones tweeting about it. Like the, the, que- the the big question that I sort of wrestle with in regards to the movie is, you know, what the relationship between love and time, as I was talking about, and like how I, I was writing about how this movie had a really curious effect on me because every time I saw it, no matter how old I became, I always felt like I was 16 going on nine again. Hmm. And I always felt at the end of the movie when after he's thawed out from the ice under, you know, near Coney Island where he's been frozen for 2000 years and the super robots of the future voiced by Ben Kingsley reanimate his mother, um, in a fairy tale way that sort of, I forgot like, that they really have like a sit down chat. It's yes. not oh, yeah. just like you're reanimated, go back to life. Yeah. Like he sits ben, him down ben, in his childhood ben Kingsley room. Kingsley talks like, to him. Yeah. I'm a big, uh, <laughs> computer guy from the future. And um, they explained to him how like, you know, they're able to reanimate them from the because Teddy saved the lock of her hair and they're only able to do it until she falls asleep. And it is very, you know, it anticipates something like Interstellar where like love is the only force that can move through space and time. It's like, you know, his hmm. the only reason that she is uh, able yes, to come the back. Individual space time pathway. Is yeah, the, yeah. Because, right. Because she has, like, he has this, this very like, specific. 
yeah, he has this affection for her that actually disrupts the space-time continuum and allows her to exist. Oh, but I would always be so heartbroken. I was, I knew intellectually this was supposed to be a happy ending of sorts, bittersweet maybe, but but happy in a fairy tale sort of way. But I was so upset at the idea of only being able to spend 24 hours or less with your mom, with a parent before they were gone forever. And like the anxiety of trying to make the most of that time Mm -hmm. um, and just how bereft you would feel when it was over. And, you know, nothing about what the movie was indicating to me sort of semiotically or thematically was able to fight the feeling of, of just how, you know, desolate I felt at at the end of this. Um, And even though it ends with Monica saying that she loves David uh, or, you know, the shadow resurrected version of Monica saying that, and that's enough for him to go into the land of dreams or die or whatever it is that's happening to him. Doesn't Um, he like go become like the help the aliens reconstruct humanity? Well, it's, it's, he's already sort of done that. I mean, it's, it's unclear, but what is clear to me and what I think having, a child, really, because I watched this movie for the first time since having a kid, and I started to realize, in terms of like love and time, that the emphasis isn't on the time that only that he only has so many hours with her. It's really about the fact that that love sort of, and I, you can only talk about this movie sounding ridiculous, but that it sort of extends in the past and present in a way that's as real, if not more so, than it is in the present. I mean, like the love that I. Like after my dad died, I realized that like he was sort of more present with me now in a way than he had ever been when he was alive because we have sort of this buffer zone and able to sort of uh, coalesce our relationship together and understand it in the way that after having a son, I find myself thinking about him in terms of the future and the life that he's going into and the planet that he's going to inherit from us. And so many of the joys that I take in his life, the feelings that I have about him are imagined from this time to come. And thinking about love on the fourth dimensional axis in a way and realizing in a more literal way than I ever did when I was watching this movie before that it's literally because of David's love for Monica that not only that she's able to come back, but that humanity as a whole is remembered. That like our existence is somehow preserved. The idea of love as a viable emotion that's foreign to these super robots is is preserved uh, for the future because he is David ultimately, you know, real or not the only son that humanity has left. And mm-hmm. he is able to, because of that, because of this lock of hair that Teddy kept from her and the love that he ha- he's able to display for them as they watch, like, a, you know, they're watching a medical arena from their seats in the bleachers. And, you know, they see him performing this love for her and sort of come to understand it. And I think whatever happens after that is, you know, is sort of irrelevant because he's already sort of given them the sample that they need. But it just, you know, it, it just really resonated with me in thinking about like how there is, without being too cheesy about it, like there is some truth to the idea that like it, you can't capture time in a bottle. You can't obsess over that last day that you have with someone. There is never going to be enough time. It is always a finite resource. But the way that Professor Hobby's love for his son in its own fucked up Frankenstein way is able to be present in, you know, gives birth to David, who is able to sort of uh, take the love that he has for Monica and take it 
you know, into the future and survive the keeps him alive during the flesh fair, and it takes it two thousand years in the future, and it ultimately ends up being what preserves the entire memory of our species. I find sort of immensely beautiful in a way that doesn't let the movie be crushingly sad for me anymore. Um, That's the movie's still crushingly sad for me. I gotta be honest. It is. Um, well, I I haven't walked, sat down and watched AI in probably many years, but um. You know, I did not recall that the opening is Ben Kingsley telling me that the coastal cities of of our great triumph have been destroyed mm-hmm. by uh, climate mm-hmm. change and rising sea levels. I'm like, oh shit! Yeah. here we go. This 2001. Sucks. They saw. They knew. We knew. Yeah, it's amazing that this movie was July 2001. This yeah. is pre 9/11. Spielberg goes on an absolute tear. The um, uh, the article that I'm filing now about this movie it, the lead is kind of about not about 9-11 but about how like it has always felt like the last movie i saw as a child because i was always sort of frozen in that nine-year-old even though i was 16 like feeling like you know that that unconditional love that kids have for their parents and um and how it never really occurred to me that that was why because of 9-11 because everything that happened before that summer felt like it was covered in this like, you know, afterglow and was separate from what was happening. And so, yeah, I mean, it is, it is a really sort of like loss of innocence type of movie. In that sense. Mm. Yeah. Katie, how about your rewatch? Uh... I mean, I had seen it at some point. I didn't see it in the summer of 2001. So I don't know when I saw it and it didn't do much for me as a parent. Like I just didn't, the movie's about being a child so much more than being a parent, which I don't, it's not a knock on it. That's what the movie is explicitly about. And that's what a lot of Spielberg is about. But I think that notion of like unconditional love for your parents is something that children can feel but not express or, in the, or that you know more as an adult than you do as a child. So the entire process that David goes through of like wanting his mother to love him and wanting to be a real boy and like like craving this affection it it like what the parents feel is much more on the surface and much like you know the, the anguish that Monica feels when she has to give him up is very real but also again like oh that scene is heartbreaking that that yeah. I, I felt I was feeling more judgmental about the parents this yeah. time around I'm like why are you giving David away like yeah. even if there was an accident or how can you detach yourself from this relationship it's too but I, real I how can because, you drop your kid off I think that she's sort of horrified by the fact that she can't bring herself to love. Like she's, it, it disgusts her in a way, and she can't bear that. You don't like, think by the time she drops him off in the woods that she loves him? I mean, it's such cognitive dissonance because she has feelings of love towards him, but I don't think that you know the question like what makes something real, right? And this is something that I've been thinking about a lot recently. After reading, we talked about this on a recent episode, Kazuo Ishiguro's uh, Clara and the Sun, which is a similar story. Um, and I really don't, there's a passage on literally the second to last page of the book that explains this beautifully. And I do not want to quote hmm. because, you know, for that reason, but, um, but you know, the, the be like loving something, I don't think is enough to qualify something as real. Like love can be programmatic. You can, as you see in the movie, code David to love things, to Obsess right. over. Well, things. I think. I think. But you be, know, this like, time around, I thought a lot about that. Capaci- Spike Jones, Let me just finish this uh, thought. Yeah, like right. having the capacity to be loved, like being loved by something, that is more of an animating force. And I think that like Monica feels that love from him and feels like she should return it, but 
the fact that she can't puts him in this sort of human-sized uncanny valley that, like, looking at your own child or someone who's supposedly your own child and feeling that uncanny valley, like, you're talking to fucking Tintin 10 years later. Like, Hmm. that is, that is, I think, too queasy a feeling for her to live with. Yeah, I I was going to say, I think, I was thinking about that Spike Jones Ikea commercial while watching AI this time where, um, there's, like, a, a, a family has a lamp and they're going to get rid of their lamp and switch it. And they put the lamp on the curb and it's raining and you just see this lamp and you feel bad about the lamp. And then some guy comes out. And he's like, it's, it's just, just a lamp. lamp. Why are you t- yeah. so sad about the lamp? It's just a lamp. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, it, you know, we can be manipulated in this case by cinema. In this her case, it's just by the design of of. The, of Al, Professor Hobby, like creating this entity, right? Well, that's like, to, uh, but he know, also question. does have. I mean, the whole point of the movie is that he do, he does feel things. He is an entity who ha- feels. You know, well, well I guess the question but, is: Does he possess love, or does he replicate so love my to such a degree that he can matter, bring? Right? He can my transfer human love into the future for other robots. Well, there, so my conclusion is that the ultimate answer for me is that he's a vessel for love, which right? He's a vessel more important. That he is, whether or not, yeah, well, whether or not he is able to feel love in a way that we recognize is irrelevant. That he's able to carry that love and keep it alive, like a torchbearer of sorts, is, I think, more important and and maybe as real as it gets. Right? Like that's as there isn't really a, a chance for us to divine, you know, what's real and what isn't beyond that. I think that's like this. I had this problem with Westworld with every season. And God knows this is a better movie than every single episode of Westworld combined. But the entire thing being like, well, what is real? Is can a robot be a person? Can a robot have I've never clicked into that. Like, I've never really cared about that as an animating narrative device. And I find the same thing here where it's just like I'm not really interested in whether or not like a soul exists in a robot. Like, I care about David. I care about. Jigolo Joe, Jude Law is great in this movie, by the way. I feel like we don't talk about this much. And I was going to bring this up because I specifically, I feel like I knew you were going to go in the Jigolo Joe. You know, direction. you don't hear to talk and about I, Jude Law at all. I wrote down a question times. for you, which is: Would you have sex with Jigolo Joe? And if you did, would it be cheating or is it more masturbation when you have sex with Jigolo Joe? Ooh, I think it probably is cheating, but I definitely would. I mean, I'd oh, get to, like you he's know, just a robot. Yeah, he's not human. It's true, but I f- and you have no love. You and know what? No it, love for you. As long as you and your partner have discussed it and you're both comfortable with it, I think it's fine. He doesn't really wash off after his. Um... No, that's yeah, that's weird. I think he, uh, like, I mean, Jude down. Law is is so good in this movie, and uh, Jude Law rules. He's such a perfect foil for for David really as good. this guy who's been intimate with every single woman in Rouge City, but is so clearly incapable of love. It's like the 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 inverse of. Uh, the little... makeup on him is phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Johnny it's... Cab in the first. And, well, Enrico well, Colantoni showing up in yeah. this like noir side thing with Brendan. I mean, I this like you know, there's a way Brendan Gleeson like... showing up as yeah, like I mean, a... the, this movie yeah. definitely has three very clear acts, maybe even four. But there is something about like the vessel idea of it that allows me to see it as one coherent thing. Also, I do want to say that the drowned New York that they visit which is a combination of, of sets and, and computer-generated backgrounds, is, like, one of the most awe-inducing the locations. Movie. It's really... In, the, in the CGI movie. in this movie is crazy good. Amazing. On the faces of all the the mechas when they're, like, trying to replace their faces and it's, like... Ha- I mean, it looks new. It's incredible. 
I don't know how they did it. The world really is is so vivid, and I wonder. I mean, it's so big. I I, I thought of two things while watching this. One, we'll never see a movie like this again. Where uh, two thousand one was just such a period where okay, we could still make kind of like mid budget or bigger budget movies that aren't just blockbusters. Like this is not an action movie. This is just a drama that has tons of special effects. But that totally dies off after this. After like Lord of the Rings and the Rise of Marvel, and just like. This movie is the uh, and and being made in the 2000s when we have really modern special effects techniques. Like I don't what I mean, movie inter- is like, like this? Interstellar, right? I mean, maybe, but Tenet? Uh, that has like big action moments. Tenet is an action movie. Okay, this fine. Is not yeah, like you said Tenet. action movie. Sorry. Um, and the other thing is like, oh man, all I want to do now we're in the prestige TV era. I'm just like, come bring me back to the world of AI. As you were talking about, David, with the AR game, like. That was so exciting at the time, just like being part of this sprawling world. You don't have to follow David or any of these characters again, but I'd want to go back to the world of AI because it's just there's so many parts. Like when he goes to the city and the flesh fairs and just like going to New York, like it's really conceived. You know, Spielberg, every time he did one of these movies, was hiring tons of futurists to envision what the world would look like if XYZ happened and how this would impact that. It's just like it's such a thought through idea and it really brings me closer to David, because we don't lose uh, his his perspective at any point. To um, me? Yeah, Bernie, yeah. I, what uh, is it like to well, be I, you, complaining about things and eating ice cream? Uh, I just want to <laughs> bring this back around to one last thing before I have to go, because if I don't file this article about AI soon, it'd be bad. Um, is that uh, the ending, so the ending, people sort of assumed because the ending felt I suppose, schmaltzy. I mean, I think there is sort of a bad faith assumption that goes into this. Why do people that, think it's schmaltzy? Yeah, it's I was weird. just like, I found it so devastating. It's really sad. Of it. But, it, you know, they assume that it's a Spielbergian flourish, something that he forced in the script and Kubrick wouldn't have signed off on, when in fact, the ending was all Kubrick's invention. And in hindsight, I have to say, I, I though, you know, I'd be like, I mean, to call this wisdom would be hubristic, but I, I wasn't thinking this clearly back when I saw it the first time, for sure. And now I've sort of slowly come around to this argument that for me it seems obvious that it is kubrick because the closest analog for me feels like the last reel of 2001 a space odyssey when Mm. you think about this like futuristic disembodied domesticity and like the wonder that it creates it's sort of unreal beyond the furthest thing that we can imagine but back to the root of it all in a way um there is Mm -hmm. a sort of circuitous logic to it um you know obviously not as trippy as the end of 2001 but it does feel within the same wheelhouse and i just see you know it's obvious now that i know that he wrote this to say that i see his footprints and handprints footprints i see his fingerprints all over this but um i do confirmation bias or not and uh, uh i do think that's a really interesting comparison to make and probably would have been better off just writing an article Comparing those two endings, but I didn't. I decided to write about fucking love and time, and now there's 3,000 I love this introduction garbage. to your writing process. Um, uh, why did I, I do it? Can I anyway, say I really... Can I say that? before we end um, that I, I wanted listener suggestions for another movie about a David who pilots a spaceship uh, because we've done Independence Day, yeah. we've done Fly the Navigator, and now we've done... I guess it's not a spaceship, it's a... What do they call it? Amphibicopter? Yeah. I need another Whoa. David in a cockpit uh, ASAP, so... I, make your suggestions we may very well just watch it just to keep things up also i guess 2001 actually that's what it is <laughs> i'm afraid i can't do that dave so yeah well i guess we're watching 
2001 would be a fun one to do on the show, honestly. Maybe that'll be my next pick. AI. It's on YouTube uh, with terrible <laughs> it's ad It's also breaks. on Paramount Plus and oh. Prime, so you don't have to watch it the way you did. Fine. I, Prime did not present itself easily enough as a watching option for me, so yeah, don't watch it the way I did. I shoot the lights out. Until it's bright out Oh, just another lonely night Are you willing to sacrifice your life? That does it for this week's show. Uh, Patches and Dave will be back next week, allegedly. We'll in see theory, what they do. Maybe we'll take a break. I don't know. We might take a break. Well, it's, it's summer. We're gonna, we'll, we'll work it out. Uh, in the meantime, uh, tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches, senior editor at Polygon.com. I'm on the Twitter at Mr. Patches and producing another podcast right now called Galaxy Brains, hosted by Jonah Ray and Dave Schilling. And they did a Loki episode. We had Jen Yamato, who I love, uh, on for our F9 episode. Oh, tell me when you're going to do a high key episode, you know? That's what I'll do. Oh, I see. High key, Loki. There you go. Um, anyway, wow. yes, go listen to Galaxy Brains, but also go listen to our old episodes of Fighting in the War Room. We have many, many years of old episodes to, to plow through. Share it with your friends. Fightinginthewarroom.com. Uh, I am David Ehrlich. I am very sorry that I rushed us to the end of that segment without hearing Matt Patch's take on <laughs> can't get it out of being now. a parent. It's and now late. it's coveted. Now it's all anyone will... wants to know is what does Matt Patch's I'm going to the bottom as a of the parent ocean. think about AI? We'll never know, and it's my fault, but maybe one day we can pry it out of him. I'm very sorry. Um, you can find me on Twitter, David Ehrlich, where I'll be writing about, and on IndieWire, where I'll, where I'll be writing about uh, uh, AI this week. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, can shit. And, uh, that, yeah, go on iTunes, Fighting in the War Room. Leave us a review. We'll read it on the show. You don't want to know more about the royal family. You already know too much. Thanks. Uh, and I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fair, editing and writing stories about the royal family. Um, you can find me on the Little Gold Men podcast, uh, where this week we are doing a flashback to Brokeback Mountain. Good movie. That's going to be my hot take. Sneak preview. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-E-C-H. And we're all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, where I still want to hear your suggestions of movies about Davids in cockpits. Uh, or you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was, Patches is going to do it. In honor of a movie probably none of us will see, The Boss Baby Family Business, what's an actually cute kid in a movie? Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. Stop your, stop your silly nonsense, nonsense. None of you niggas know where the swamp is. None of you niggas have seen the carnage that I've seen. I still hear things scream in my dreams. Murder, murder, and black convertibles. I kill a block, I murder the avenues. I rape and pillage a village, women and children. Everybody want to know what my Achilles heel is. Love, I don't get enough of it. All I get is these vampires and bloodsuckers. All I see is these niggas I made millionaires. Milling about, spilling their feelings in the air. I'll tell you when I'm done. With no things, trying to keep blood my ice cold veins. I wonder what I can find. My fair lady. I'm done.